Amen. He's all that we need. And uh, if we've got Jesus, we need no other. And this morning as we look into uh, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah here, uh, we look at a book that is really a microcosm of the entire Scripture. The first 39 chapters of this book are looking forward to the captivities that are being proclaimed against Israel for, the, for their sin. Uh, and then verse, their chapters 40 through 66, the last 27, are uh, looking beyond the captivity and the God's restorative power. And so he prophesies coming judgment for sin in an effort to get them to repent and to turn from their sin uh, and then tells them of the captivity that they must endure uh, and the bondage that they must endure. And then he encourages them by letting them know that when they do come back around and repent that there is restoration, that God uh, restores whenever uh, we fall by the way. And so we look here uh, at a nation that's outlined in this text and we're now looking beyond the captivities. And so he speaks as if the captivities sometimes in this text have already taken place, though they will not come to fruition until we get into Jeremiah and Lamentations at the end there. Uh, and so and Isaiah preaches and, and testifies the, the, the history of his book uh, covers about 62 years of time. Uh, and so this is not a process of God coming up today and saying, hey, I want to bring judgment upon you if you don't turn and you've got a week to make a decision. No, he, he proclaimed and he preached and he loved and he uh, pled with them to turn from their sin and to turn to, uh, to their Savior and they would not turn. Isaiah is a wonderful book. It tells us and reveals to us uh, the fallacy of organized religion, of going through the motions of uh, spiritual things in the first couple of chapters, it deals heavily with uh, the people of Israel doing everything exactly the way that God said that it should be done as far as the offering of sacrifices and their uh, worship, but yet he condemns them because all they're doing is the act. They are not living it in their heart. Uh, what worship should be is is reflected outwardly of what's taking place or has already taken place inside. Uh, it is not just something that we come together and manufacture so we feel as if we have worshipped uh, God. Uh, and so the early chapters there, he gets into that. Then God reveals himself to Isaiah in chapter 6 in an amazing way uh, and shows him uh, how, uh, how holy he is. And it's an amazing thing that the holiness, and we'll see this later, and the righteousness of God when it comes into our presence or when we come into his presence, no matter how well we feel we're doing, no matter how righteous we may feel that we are, uh, the, the presence of God and his righteousness reveals just how wicked and ungodly we are. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, people tend to, tend to uh, fall into the trap of uh, justifying my life by gauging it or measuring it against someone's life who maybe uh, is that, that society would deem as, uh, as less righteous or not as kind or not as uh, worthy of salvation as us. And I'm just telling you this morning, no one is worthy of God's grace and mercy. No one is worthy of his salvation. Nobody is worthy uh, of eternal life, but God's love and mercy and grace have given it to us anyway. Uh, and that's what God does. And so God's proclaiming to them here. And as he warns them, uh, he starts off and he says, Bell boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beast and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. Uh, they are a burden and weary. Uh, they are a, a burden to the weary beast. And so 
What he's talking about here, Nebo uh, and Bel are Babylonian deities. And so they are idols that the Babylonians Babylonians worship. Uh, There's really not uh, a lot of difference in religion. Uh, There are a lot of different things that have different titles, different names. But when you boil it all down, uh, what it comes down to is, uh, is what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to have eternal life? All religions in the world say you must do this or that. You must reach this echelon to become worthy of eternal life. But Jesus said, I am the way. That's all we need. It's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon the righteousness and the power of man. We have none. But man likes their idols. We love our idols. You say, well, Pastor, I don't have any idols in my home. I would argue this morning that if you understand definitively what a true idol is, that every one of us have some form of an idol, even the best of Christians in the room, uh, tend to allow something to creep up at least occasionally that we elevate to the place of God. And when we do that, then we've turned that thing into an idol. It might be a person. It might be a family member. It might be a job, a hobby. Uh, It doesn't have to be, my point is this morning, that it doesn't have to be a little statue that we carry around or that we bow down to, though here clearly that's what they have. Uh, And so he talks about the weariness of having to carry their God. He speaks here to uh, the burden even of, uh, of the oxen or the, the donkeys that have to carry the load as they move from one place to the other. Listen as he uh, describes the, uh, their gods. Then verse 2, they stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, uh, but themselves are gone into captivity. Even their gods have been carried into captivity with the people. Their gods are powerless. Their gods are inanimate objects. Their gods have no life. Their gods have no strength. Verse 3, he says, Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to your whore hairs will I carry you. God's promise is that I have created you, and I will carry you. And the difference here in the gods of this world and the gods of false religion, whether it be an idol or whether it be a concept or whether it be a philosophy, is that those gods must be carried by man, but the true and living God carries us. I do not need a God this morning that I have to carry through life. I do not need a God that cannot help me lift my burdens. I do not need a God. I have no use for a God that I have to stand up in a corner of my home to bow down to that cannot hear me, that cannot answer me, that does not care about me, that does not know my name when I have a God that knows my name, that loves me. So Isaiah cries out strongly. This is a nation that's headed to captivity. This is a nation that's going to be invaded, and even in up until the moment of invasion, they are offered opportunity to turn to a nation that's been oppressed, and their cities will be besieged, and God, at their darkest hour, begins to work in the hearts uh, of some. Well, I'm sure glad that God didn't forsake me in my darkest hour, but that he sought me out and found me and put my foot upon a rock. 
That's what our God does this morning. I want you to notice the consequence of their sin, though we'll move into the to a little bit more of this. But in verse number two, and when he says they stooped, they bowed down together, they could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity and realize that sin from which we have not been delivered will always lead us into bondage. Whether you know Jesus is your Savior or not this morning, if you maintain sin in your life and do not forsake it and confess it, eventually it will subject you to its bondage. I'm glad this morning that I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not have to be worried uh, uh, and concerned about being subjugated to the bondage of hell. That's been forever forgiven by, and, and that sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. My position in Christ is that I have been born again when I repented of my sin and I turned from it unto God and I, and I accepted his gift of salvation. Then I came to a place where my sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. It's covered under the blood of Christ. My position as a child of God in heaven is secure however that doesn't mean that sin can't creep in and to steal from me the abundant life that Jesus promised me here and those that would not set them or let Jesus set them free from the bondage of their sin positionally will suffer an eternity in hell separated from God and the Christian who has accepted salvation that will cling to their sin and not turn from it and repent from it and confess it will subject themselves to the bondage of that sin in this life though their soul is secure their effectiveness for God their ability to bear fruit their ability to have joy their ability uh, to have God hear and answer their prayer has been stolen because they are in bondage to sin. Chastisement will come for sin. But always afterwards its purpose is to bring restoration. I'm glad this morning that though God has wrath and anger and God judges sin and just justice must be satisfied uh, and sin must be paid for, that the overwhelming thing about God is that His ultimate goal is always restoration. He always wants to restore us. He always wants to bring us to a place of, uh, of fellowship and service to Him. And God's message here is that restoration will follow after the judgment comes because Messiah is coming. And Isaiah begins to tell us prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this morning that Israel is facing these things and he also gives them uh, in verse 2 we've read it the cause of their bondage their priorities got out of balance and we don't have time this morning to go back and dissect the book leading into this though I mentioned it earlier uh, they're doing many of the right outward actions but their heart is not in fellowship with God and their priorities begin to shift and get out of balance and when our priorities in life begin to shift and get out of balance it always leads us to a dangerous place. They're conforming to Babylonian customs. And Israel, for all of its history, has been uh, suffering from this idea or this need to blend in with the culture around them. It's still a great danger to the church today. But if you look back at Israel's history, you see them as they're going through the uh, and through uh, even with Abraham, Lot was drawn to the culture. Uh, you see in uh, the times of of uh, the judges how they're draw, being drawn away from God and into the culture led them into 
periods of judgment. You see them in First and Second Samuel or First Samuel, where they're crying out to the prophet uh, to cry out to God on their behalf that they want a king like all the other people around them have, and then they want the gods that all the other people around them have. And ultimately, Israel's problem from its from the time that that God introduced Himself to them up until this day, and it's carried over to Christians in the New Testament age, uh, even those of us that are Gentile uh, by birth. It has made us a, a, a people and it has demonstrated that we are drawn to the culture around us sometimes more than we're drawn to God. And what has beset them and what has overcome them is that they have allowed themselves to be conforming and conformative to the culture around them. They are not confronting the culture. They are not, uh, they are not preaching to the culture. They are not shining a light in the darkness of that culture. They are adapting to that culture. And they are then adopting that culture. Go through and read Kings and Chronicles and see how they put up the groves and the high places of worship to the idols. And they simply added all these other deities and gods of the surrounding nations. Even as slaves in Egypt, they were drawn to the idols and to the deities of the land. The falsity of feeling as if we are making an impact if we simply blend in is on great display. They conform to the customs, they gradually turn from God, and they begin ultimately to worship these false gods. And when we begin to openly worship the gods of this world, we are in a bad place. Then that led to some effects, the effects of the bondage. In verse number 2, again we see it, it led themselves are gone into captivity. They're, they're suffering. Sin always leads to suffering. It may seem uh, joyous in the moment. It may cause you to forget the problems of the day. It might serve as a tremendous distraction in the moment, but when the bill comes due, they're suffering. The suffering can manifest itself in many ways. It might manifest itself in frustration. It can manifest itself in depression. It can manifest itself in anger. Ultimately, it will manifest itself in hopelessness. You ever get to the place where you just feel like you're hopeless? God, I need you, but I can't feel connected. God, I need your power. I can't feel as if you care about me. God, I can't. Uh, we, we get into this place and our sin overwhelms us. And all we need to do is turn from our sin to our Savior for deliverance. But we instead turn many times to the gods of this world. That hopelessness overwhelms. Then God comes on the scene. And he says... Remember this and show yourselves men in verse 8. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. My friend, if you're here this morning and you feel hopeless, there is no other, no place farther than you need to look than to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God. He is alive. He is not some dead statue or some figure hanging on the wall of some church somewhere. He's not still on the cross, that's for sure. He got up out of the grave and rose victorious. Somebody come in one time and said, Pastor, there's no Jesus on the cross. That's because my Savior's not on a cross. Amen. God help the religions that want to keep their Savior of man on a cross. 
He's not on the cross. He's not suffering. He's at the right hand of God. The only suffering that Jesus does is when those that he died for reject him. And his heart hurts and his Holy Spirit grieves whenever we, uh, whenever we embrace this world instead of turning to our God. No other God spoke and created. Remember the works of old. No other God brought a great flood to bring things back into order. No other God caused Abraham and Sarah to conceive in their old age. No other God brought the plagues upon Egypt and parted a sea to free his people. No other God uh, made the sun to stand still or closed the mouths of lions or sacrificed his son on a cross. And no other God is coming again to receive his bride into himself but Jesus. He is our God this morning. There is no other God like him. I love the book of Daniel and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel uh, chapter 3 when uh, Nebuchadnezzar is so filled with pride and full of himself that he builds a tremendous idol. Uh, it's an image of him and the commands that everyone bow down and worship and they, they refuse to bow down and their enemies point out to them that they will not bow down and he is enraged and brings them in and, and says, if you don't, you're going in this furnace. And he got so angry that he stoked the fire uh, seven times hotter than it was and so hot that the soldiers that carried them up to the to the mouth of the furnace uh, perished and died because of the heat and cast them in and Nebuchadnezzar looks in and doesn't see just the three but sees four men walking because Jesus is in the midst of the fire and when he calls them out and they emerge and they come out and the ropes are loosed and their hair is not singed and their clothes have no smell of smoke and God has delivered them that even Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, cries out in verse 29 of chapter 3 and says, there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And I'm just telling you this morning, no matter what you face in this life, if your life is overwhelmed by sin, if you're overwhelmed by, by depression, if you're overwhelmed by addiction, if you're in bondage to the world around you, if your home is in shambles, if your marriage is falling apart, if you have no relationship with your family, if you've got nothing that you feel is going right in your life, if you have needs that you cannot supply, that there is a God that is like no other God that can supply all your needs. And it starts when he supplies forgiveness for sin. It starts when the Holy Spirit begins to draw down conviction, when he shows us our need of a Savior, when he shows us our horrible condition. And like, with, uh, like the writers in Scripture said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, O wretched man that I am, like the Apostle Paul said, amongst sinners of whom I am chief, uh, the greatest Christian that ever lived, considered himself the chiefest of sinners. And when we come to realize that it doesn't matter how good we dress up and look on the outside, but we are defiled in the heart, we'll never understand and see what the great need we have of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, I'm here to tell you that if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that the bad news is, is that in this moment you are on your way to hell that was not created for you and that God does not desire you to go to. But you're headed there. But if you'll realize that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, 
born of a virgin that lived a sinless life on this earth and took upon himself our sin and allowed his Father in heaven and submitted to his Father in heaven, pouring out the wrath of eternity upon his body on that cross until he gave up his life uh, to pay our sin debt and descended into hell and let captivity captive and emerge with the keys of death and hell and three days later got up out of a grave and then appeared to his man and ascended to his father that that God is the God that says, I do not want you to perish. That if you'll realize who I am and you'll realize that you are a sinner, that you have no worth, that you have no ability in and of yourself to save yourself, that you, no matter how good you are, no matter how nice you are, no matter how much compassion you have, that compared to God, you're a wretched, wicked sinner. And that's our condition, my friends. That's the way that we were born. I'm not trying to be unkind this morning. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just trying to state the facts as the Bible explains them. That our sin is as filthy, our, our righteousness is as, in the sight of God is as filthy rags. And you could be the best person, the greatest person, the kindest person, the most benefit or the mo- the greatest benefactor that mankind has ever known and die and split hell wide open because you know not Jesus Christ. It's not about what we do and who we are. It's about realizing who he is and realizing my condition and understanding that there's nothing that I can do about it except repent of my sin and turn to my savior and put my faith in him and accept his gift and let him transform my life and what you need this morning and what I need this morning is to realize that sin will put me in bondage and that the only hope of freedom that I have is to walk with the one and the only true and living God because there is no other God like him he is our God death could not hold him and as Isaiah proclaims him and gives his words to his people, we see uh, that what God is doing here, that they've, they've gone to their gods. He catalogs for us. In verse number, beginning at verse number five, he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Who are you going to compare me to? I mean, God looks down and he says, listen, you've got all your gods, but who are really are you going to compare me to? What have they ever done for you? What prayer have they ever heard? When have they ever listened? What burden have they ever lifted? God says, who will you compare me to? Verse 6, they lavish gold out of their bag and they weigh the silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god. I'm glad this morning that I'm not, I'm not worshiping a God that's made by the hands of man, but I'm worshiping the, the God whose hands made man. Amen. He is our creator, and he formed us. I want to point out three thoughts this morning about this. You see, in verse number 13, he said, I bring near my righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. The first thing I want to point out this morning is that no other God can redeem the rebellious. No other God can redeem the rebellious. So, Pastor, are you calling me a rebel? Yep. Because we are. I am too sometimes. And we can sugarcoat things and we can try to fluff everybody up and make them feel good. But, hey, hey listen, I, I'm not here uh, to help to help you live your best life. I'm here to help you live the life that God gave you. Amen. I'm here to help point out the truths of the Word of God. 
No other God can redeem the rebellious. A rebel is simply someone who is in opposition to authority. It doesn't have to be outward. It doesn't have to, listen, I worked with people for a long time and worked for, with teenagers for a lot of years. And, uh, and there's all kinds of rebels. They come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And sometimes they're real belligerent and in your face and bold with their rebellion. And sometimes uh, they smile and they act like everything is just great and wonderful and turn around and stick a knife in your back. But they're still in opposition to authority and that makes them a rebel. There's a lot of people in churches that are rebels. Why? Because they're in opposition to God-ordained authority. And ultimately, when we're in opposition to, and rebellious against God-ordained authority, then we're rebellious against God himself. No other God can redeem the rebellious. Notice first the compassion of the Savior. The compassion of the Savior. He says in verse 13, as we consider that no other God can redeem the righteous or the rebellious, uh, that we see the compassion of the Savior in the midst of his declaration of coming judgment. He says, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. What an incredible statement. You understand what he's saying here? Listen, the reality is, Michael, is that when Jesus and when God brings forth his righteousness, it exposes to us our sin and our condition. We can't see it when we're amongst ourselves, but when we're standing next to God, it's pretty obvious. But the real message here, though that's part of it, is that he came near. I will bring near my righteousness. I'm not going to stand off in a corner and hide somewhere, Michelle, God says, and make you try to come and seek me out and find me. I recognize what your condition is, and I'm God, and I'm righteous and holy, And so I'm going to get close to you. Why? Because his presence exposes my need. The presence of God. And God comes to us. God seeks us out. God searches us. God longs for fellowship with his creation. God is looking, Susan, to transform your life and your family's life and your friend's life and everyone that you come in contact with in your student's life. God wants to make a change that is miraculous in the lives of everyone that he's given life to. And though we stand, Wayne, in our sin, God says, my compassion is going to cause me to bring my righteousness near. I'm glad that when I was drifted and backslidden and rebellious against God, that he did not leave me sitting alone, but he found a way to draw near to me. I bring near my righteousness. The compassion of the Savior brings conviction to the sinner. The conviction of the sinner I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not tarry. And what we see, and what we see in Isaiah chapter 6 is that the presence of God's righteousness convicts the sinner. You know, it's an amazing thing how someone that's living in sin gets real uncomfortable around their pastor. It really is funny. I had this lady one time when I was pastoring in Arkansas, and she would argue with me to no end about how something that she was doing in her life was perfectly fine, that there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't even that big of a deal as far as the way it impacted me. And I saw her in the store one day, and she I saw her before 
she realized that I saw her and she looked up and saw me and she, uh, she was doing and had what she was trying to convince me was okay. And her reaction when she saw me was to run around the corner and hide. So I saw her go around the corner and hide. And so I ducked around the other aisle and met her coming around the other way. It's kind of like playing hide and seek with my granddaughters around the table. I made her face it. And I just thought to myself, I said, you know, if you really believe that what you were doing was right, why are you hiding? I remember one time we had a missionary coming into town and, uh, and one of the deacons there's wives uh, was, was my secretary and she, uh, she made baskets that sit in the room for the missionaries when they came in and she was kind of overwhelmed that week and uh, she had the basket ready but it was at her house and so uh, I stopped by the hotel and things were running a little bit behind and it was getting close to time for the missionary and so uh, I called her and asked her if she needed any help and she said yeah if you could just swing by the house and my husband's there and uh, and he can give you the basket if you could drop that off that would be great. So I pull up, and I'm, and I'm in the church van. I don't, I'm not even in my private vehicle. I'm in the church van. It says Maranatha Baptist Church all the way down the side of the van. Uh, I mean, the van's just a 15-passenger van, uh, but it, it was big enough in that neighborhood to look about 30 feet long. And I come around the corner, and he's got a cigarette smoking about that long. <laughs> Weed eating inside of the yard. He just lit it. Now he's lighting it when I'm coming around the corner. And he's a deacon. He knows better. He knows what he's, the example he's supposed to set. And he come around and looked up and saw me pulling his driveway. And he tried to rip that thing out of his mouth and curl it up under his arm and hide it. I had already seen it. I stayed there and talked to him so long that I know it was burning the end of his fingertips before I drove <laughs> off. I mean, he was just convinced that it was, okay, pastor. And, and I never said a word to him about it. I never said the word to the lady in the store, and I never said a word to him in his driveway. I, I, he felt bad enough. I didn't need to say anything. God had already said all that needed to be said. <laughs> but it's amazing how when a spiritual authority figure comes into our presence, by the way, it doesn't even have to be that. Walk with God and go to work tomorrow. Don't even proclaim any righteousness, just live for Jesus and let his light shine through you. And watch how people begin to squirm. It really can't be a lot of fun. <laughs> Listen, God says, I'm going to come near to you. That shows us his compassion. But the result is, is that when I get close to him, Brother Buck, I see my failure. I see my sin. I come under conviction from the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful gift from God, by the way. That's not a bad thing. It's not, it might be an uncomfortable thing, but it's not a bad thing. It is just coming to God, the compassion of the Savior, the conviction of the sinner. That shows us the contrition or leads to the contrition of the sinner. Listen, we must turn from our sin to righteousness. We must repent of our and listen. There's a lot of different ideas about repentance. Repentance is simply this. It is a genuine godly sorrow. A genuine godly sorrow causes me to determine not to offend the one whom I've offended again intentionally. I mean, 
If I, if I walk up to Joey and I just, and I think I've probably done this to him before, not literally, but as, a, as an example, if I walk up to him and just slap the fire out of him, two things are going to happen. He's going to have a handprint and be mad, and his wife's going to say, thank you, Pastor, do it again. <laughs> and I feel bad, and I say, man, brother, I'm so sorry. I don't know what overtook me. Please forgive me. And he's gracious, and he forgives me. And I walk off and go about my business and come back in the next day and walk up to Joey and get him again. After about the fifth or sixth day, you have to understand it takes Joey a little while to catch on sometimes. Uh, he's going to get tired of that. See, repentance is when I'm genuinely sorry. If I've hurt you and I'm genuinely sorry, it doesn't mean that I won't fail, but it does mean that there's a godly sorrow. And until I come to the place, even for salvation, that I realize that I not only do I recognize who God is and what he's done, but that I have a need, that I have offended God, and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit makes me sorry for that sin. Only then can I truly turn to Him and receive His gift of salvation, placing my faith in Him. And I realize there are a lot of people that disagree with that. But there's also a whole lot of people that have, that have given people a false sense of security about their eternal destiny because they just said simply pray a prayer and you've got it. Salvation's not an open sesame kind of a thing. It is God moving in the heart of man. It is God working and bringing conviction to the heart. It is God revealing himself to us so we see ourselves as who we are and we turn to him. And no other God can redeem the rebellious. No other God has compassion for the rebellious. No other God can convict the rebellious. No other God can bring the rebellious to a state of contrition. Secondly, this, this morning, consider that no other God can receive requests. No other God can receive requests. I'm glad this morning that when I've got a need, I can call out to my Father in heaven and he'll hear me. Notice what he says in verse number 7. He's speaking about the idols. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place he shall not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, Yet can he not answer nor save him out of his trouble? My God this morning, the one true and living God this morning can hear you. He can hear you. And it doesn't matter how lavish a statue looks. My wife and I went to Puerto Rico in February for our 30th anniversary and, and uh, we were driving the west part of the island and there was still a lot of devastation from the earthquake and or from the hurricane and she I mean she lived there till she was 19 years old and so uh, we drive up down this road and we're headed to uh, just the west end of the island and it's not even any place and we were just driving and we come upon this big statue and the the native Indian tribe that was on Puerto Rico and Hispaniola uh, where the Dominican Republic and Haiti are uh, is the Taino tribe and there is this massive carving in the rock at its intersection. There's a little cave, and they've got a little restaurant in this cave, and then they're selling little trinkets and uh, souvenirs on the other side of the corner, and people are stopping and taking pictures, and, and she never even knew the thing existed. 
It's pretty amazing. That was very impressive. Just a big statue. It's almost kind of like the uh, the statues of the heads on Easter Island that are famous that you see in publications a lot. Except it was just part of the cliff. It was amazing. But you know, I I stood there. Not really, but I could have stood there for three days and talked to it and tried to get a response, and it, it, it would have never responded. Isn't it funny that we can look at something like that and say, how ridiculous, Pastor? But yet we'll bow down to the same thing on a smaller scale in the corner of our home. People all over the world do. We used to have these twin girls that came to our Christian school Pine Bluff, their dad owned a hotel at the end of the road. They had a little altar and shrine in the corner of their home. They bowed down to it and prayed all the time. And dad didn't mind them coming home and singing Jesus Loves Me because it was perfectly acceptable in their culture and with their training for them to add Jesus to their list of gods. But I'm saying this morning, he says, there's only one God. There's only one God that can hear me. There's only one God that can hear me. I even remember several years ago, it was before we actually moved back, but I'd come down to the Houston area to preach at a church before I was a pastor here. Uh, and when we went home, we decided to go through the Dallas area because I wanted to, uh, I want mom, both sets of my grandparents are buried in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, one set in, in Irving and the other in Fort Worth proper. Uh, and so I just and a lot of other family members there. And so uh, I wanted to go by some of the old places I hadn't been there since I was really since I was 20 years old. And I don't remember when I came back to Texas then if it was for my grandmother's funeral, if, it, if I even went then other than to the funeral. And so I remember going to the cemetery. I remember finding the grave. I remember uh, being emotional at the gravesites because I hadn't been there in so long. I, and I didn't have a verbal, audible conversation with them. But at that particular cemetery in Irving, my, uh, my grandparents and, uh, and Miss Rita, my mom's only uh, brother, are buried there side by side. And I remember standing there and just reflecting on memories that I had as a child. And I was young whenever they all passed. I was, only, uh, I was probably only about six or seven whenever my uncle drowned, and I was only uh, nine or so whenever my grandfather died. And I was 20 when my grandmother passed. And I remember standing there being emotional and just with this flood of emotion and memories. And, and in my mind, I kind of had conversations with him. And that might strike you as odd, and in some people it does. But, you know, as I had those conversations, I had no real expectation that they heard what I said. Nor did I have any expectations that they could, from where they lay, lift any of my burdens. But do you realize this morning that we live in a world where there are millions and millions of people that believe with total and complete sincerity that the little statue in the corner or the ancestor that's passed on can solve all their problems and can answer their prayer, but they cannot even hear them. They're clinging to a false hope because culture has impressed upon them its reality and its sincerely held but sincerely contrary to who God is and what he says is true. Now, I'm not saying that 
many of those people are, that all those people are bad people. I really sincerely believe that when we stand at the white throne of judgment seat and we witness those that do not have Christ as our Savior judged and cast into hell, that we will see many people that it shocks us because of their goodness that they did not have Christ. Church-going people. People we would consider to be righteous, but never repented of their sin and trusted Jesus as their Savior. I'm just saying this morning that no other God can receive requests. No other God can hear you. No other God can, can, can feel your pain. No other God can help you with your problems. No other God longs to hear you. I mean, just think about it. God doesn't just hear us. He longs to hear us. He longs to hear from us. He, he, he waits anxiously, to put it in our terms of relationship, for the phone call. I, I remember when my wife and I, the last year before we got married, we saw each other for, for two days in May from February of 1988. We saw each other for two days in May for about three hours each day, and we saw each other for ten days in November. There were no cell phones. There were no personal computers. There was one phone call a week. And there was a letter just about every day. And man, did I look forward to that phone call. We've lost that ability. I mean, I, I longed for that call. You know, now we have cell phones and, and we long for those calls even though they could come easily at any time from our children whenever they're away. What I'm saying this morning is that God longs to hear from you. God is longing to love you. God is longing to be loved by you. God is longing to impact your life. God is longing to use your life to impact the lives of those around you. No other God can receive requests. No other God can hear. No other God longs to hear. And no other God will ever answer you. Pastor, why are the other gods so cruel? Well, the truth is, is that they're really not cruel. They just don't exist. They're not real. They've been built up. They've been propped up. They've been put in history books, but they're not real. Only Jesus is real. Lastly, this morning, consider that no other God can revive the ransom. No other God can revive the ransom. Hey, listen, if you've already got past number one this morning uh, and you've turned from your sin and received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I promise you this, uh, you have enjoyed a wonderful gift from God, but I also know that at times our human nature takes over and we drift away from Him. See, Israel's removal in their relationship from God was not sudden, it was gradual. And we gradually, if we do not maintain the relationship, drift from Him. And I would just simply say this this morning as we wrap up, that no other God can revive the ransom. No other God can come to us when we are drifting, when we are getting off course and correct our course and draw us back to himself. Notice in verses 9, 10, and 11, in verse 9, uh, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is none else. I am God. There is none like me. And I would simply say to that this, remember God's presence. 
When you feel alone, when you feel cut off, when you cannot connect, when there's sin in your life that's between you and God, and until your sin is forgiven and you've confessed it and restored the relationship, there's a barrier, it's a hindrance between your fellowship with you and your Savior. I would say this, that when you're in that mode, when you feel like you're in a desert place and you're doing everything you know to do, but it seems like God is far away still, just remember the presence of your God. He has not gone. He has not left. He is not far away. He is right there. You may not feel connected. You may not feel empowered. You may not feel as if he's hearing you. But I promise you on the authority of God's word that he hears every word and he knows every heartache and he can feed every sparrow. He certainly cares about you. No other God can revive the ransom because he tells us, remember God's presence. Then he says, remember my power. Remember my presence. Verse number 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Just in the book of Isaiah alone are countless prophecies where God declares to them what is going to happen. And we know historically that it came to pass. Not because of religion, but because of just historical records. On top of the word of God. God proclaimed things that had not yet happened and they came to be. He says, remember my power. And then lastly, remember God's purpose. Remember God's purpose. Verse number 11. The end of the verse, he says, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I also will do it. Whatever God has set into purpose will come to pass. Man cannot change it. No other God can change it. Only God, only Jesus can revive the ransom. Only Jesus can receive your request. And only Jesus can redeem you from your sin. There is no other God like Jesus. Who's your God this morning? I mean, really, truly, sincerely, who's your God? Can you say this morning that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Not because of the goodness that you've done, but because you realize that you were in a hopeless and helpless condition and could do nothing but His righteousness drew near to you. I wonder, Christian, how many of us could say, that we have no other God. Pastor, I don't know how to answer that. What will you put in his place? What will you set ahead of him? What event in your life will cause you to say, okay, God, I've got to take a break from you this week because this is more important. And really, that's the essence of it. If, I, if, I'm, if I'm not where God's told me to be, when he's told me to be there, then what I'm saying, Brother Wayne, is I'm sorry, God, but I have something more important to do today than what you told me to do. <laughs> Covers a whole lot more than just church attendance, by the way. Who's your God this morning? I I believe that the vast majority of the people, if not everybody here, would probably say, yes, God is my God. Jesus is my God. But what I'm asking is, who else is your God? What other gods do you have? 
You see, that's Israel's problem here. The problem is not that they've denied that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is their God. The problem is that they're also worshiping Baal and the others. What about a Christian? Who else are we worshiping? When it's time to go out and tell others about Christ, when it's time to contribute, when it's time to rise up and help and be a blessing to someone in need, when it's time to do all those things, who, what prevents us? What is our excuse to put it in the vernacular of our culture today? Because we really have been trained for about three generations now at least that as long as I've got an excuse and it'll be all right, God understands. And you're right, God does understand. He just doesn't understand what we think He understands. God understands who He is. God understands what He's declared in His Word. God understands, even when we don't, that there is no other God like Jesus. What we need this morning is to come to a place that if you're here and you would say, Pastor, if I died right now, I do not know with certainty that I would go to heaven. I'm not asking you if you're good or bad. That's a non-issue in my mind. As far as I'm concerned, everyone in here is a, is a, a model citizen. That's not the question. Because how good you are and how good I am, how kind I am, how compassionate I am, how generous I am has nothing to do with the answer to this question. The question is, do I know without any doubt that Jesus Christ is my Savior and when I die, I'm going to heaven? If you can't answer that question, may I beg you this morning. In about two minutes when the invitation starts, to leave your seat and to come down front and say, Pastor, I need someone to show me how I can go to heaven. And I will have someone take a Bible and take you to another room where you can ask questions and where they can show you what the Bible says. Because it doesn't matter what I think or what, the, what a given church's doctrine is. It matters what God says in the Word of God. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, and the Holy Spirit's convicted you or showed you that sometimes I've got other gods other than Him. I beg you this morning, forsake them. I beg you this morning, turn from them. I beg you this morning, turn away from the gods of this world and this culture to Jesus. Why? Because there's a whole city and a whole state and a whole nation and a whole world out there that desperately, desperately need for God's people to wholly and completely submit and surrender their will to Him so that the light can shine in the darkness, so that conviction can fall, so that everyone can have an opportunity to understand that there is no other God like Jesus.